Well, this evening, our, uh, I'm going to spend some time uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 40 with you. And so if you want to follow along in just a moment, I'm going to read, uh, I think it's there on page 10 in your worship folder from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, the first 11 verses. And uh, just to give you a little bit of context, since we're um, dropping into the middle of Isaiah, Isaiah is 66 chapters, and Isaiah 40 marks a major transition in the book of Isaiah. Uh, really, chapters 1 through 39 is nothing but just tragic. Uh, it's discouraging. Uh, there's full of despair. God's people are uh, anything but listening to him. Chapter after chapter. And they are sent off into exile, away from Judah and Jerusalem and the Promised Land. And they're in exile under foreign rule in Babylon, and when we come to Isaiah chapter 40, we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment, they've been there a while, and without much word, and then Isaiah 40, let me begin in verse 1, here's what God says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in the middle of a vision renewal series. Uh, We started this a couple weeks ago. And uh, at the turn of of the new year, uh, we started printing a new vocabulary and words to describe our vision as a church that your elders have been working on for the last year, really since last February, and finally accomplished that task in December. And these several weeks, what we're doing is just looking at, if you look at the opening page, or just inside the front cover of your worship folder, you'll see there uh, three groups of, of 
words. The first there is a sentence we're calling our vision. The second group is our values, or the things that uh, define who we are. And in many ways, uh, I think, define who we are uh, really from the beginning. Uh, and then our objectives, or our goals, uh, are described there towards the bottom. And if you want to know how do these things fit together, I, I think a good vision statement answers key questions. And the vision here answers why. Why are we here? The values answer, well, who are we? And then the objectives there at the bottom answer, how are we going to pursue this vision? Both in terms of what do we need to focus on in the future, but also how can we self-assess when we review a previous year or month or season of life as a church? So those are the big categories there. And we're just looking at, for, for four weeks, we're looking at that vision statement that uh, Red Mountain is here to pursue renewal and healing for all the people and places of Birmingham through gospel ministry and word and deed. And as I said, you know, a good vision answers key questions. Just that one vision statement, that one sentence answers a number of key questions. It answers, really, what are we here to do? We are here to pursue something. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. It answers, why are we here? Because we and our city and our world need renewal and healing. Things are not right. There is such a thing as sin and brokenness and rebellion against God that wreaks havoc with our relationship with Him, but also horizontally, our relationships with one another. It also answers the who question. Who are we here to love and to serve? We're going to look at that tonight. But then it also answers the question of how are we going to do this through gospel ministry and word and deed. So it's intended to be useful just as a, a little window in on our conversations as a session. One of the struggles of talking about this and why it takes so long is none of us wanted to come up with a vision we were never going to use. You know, there, there are tons of organizations and even churches that come up with maybe slick rhetoric and that's as far as it gets. But the more we talked and the more we wrestled, uh, I am convinced, and, and our session is certainly convinced, that this is hopefully a vision that will lead and guide us and uh, help us, particularly in, in becoming wiser, wiser as God's people in the way we live towards each other, in the way we live towards our city. So this week we're going to look at all the people in places of Birmingham. This is the who of our vision. And I want to give you a little background on why did we end up saying that? All the people in places of Birmingham. That seems like a lot, and it is. But one of the things I noticed, there are a few things I want to mention about this as we discuss this. First of all, there is, a, there is an important difference that we thought and believe is really important for us to recognize. That to say Birmingham and to say the city of Birmingham is not the same thing. And I didn't really know that when I got here. I kind of thought Birmingham, well, that's the name of a city, and city of Birmingham was the same thing. But I realized, partly because I had friends that I knew before coming here, and they said, and I'd say, where are you from? they say, Birmingham. And I got here, and like, well, you're not from Birmingham. Like, you're from Mountain Brook, or you're from Homewood, 
or you're from Vestavia, or you're from Hoover. And say, well, no, I'm from Birmingham. Like, okay. And so, as we thought about that, we realized that there's an important distinction there, that those labels mean something. And to talk about Birmingham is to say something not, is to say something not less than the city, but more than the city. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we realize that as our church is now, what, 16 years old, um, almost 17 years old, that our church is even different. That we as a congregation are made up of people who live in the city, but also outside of the city limits in the surrounding neighborhoods. And so we wanted our vision to reflect that reality. But then also, third, to say Birmingham, not to make too much of this, but to say Birmingham instead of the city of Birmingham actually captures the reality of the city of Birmingham, the the, the reality that the city of Birmingham doesn't exist in isolation. That it doesn't exist independently from the surrounding areas. And especially what's referred to down here as over-the-mountain communities. One of the great dangers we feel as a session is to think of the city independently from over the mountain. And while this might be more complicated and I think messier, we actually believe that it's more honest and more realistic to think of our vision and our ministry that way. And let me give you a couple examples. Um, Some of you may know the name of Tracy Hips. Tracy Hips, uh, he leads or directs the Christian service mission about five or six blocks um, towards Avondale. And when I was getting to to know him and and continue to get to know him and having a conversation and talking about the city of Birmingham and the needs of our city, he helped me understand Birmingham in a very, very succinct way. And he did it by referring to the major highways. And the way he thinks about what they do at Christian Service Mission is in terms of the 2059 corridor. He calls the 2059 corridor the corridor of needs. And then he refers to the 280-31 corridor as the corridor of resources. And their big struggle is how do you connect those two corridors? There's a recognition that there are resources, both financial, uh, intellectual, uh, spiritual, emotional, that are not being shared. And how do you connect those needs with those resources? That's what they're wrestling with. But there's no way for them to really wrestle with that and not talk about Birmingham and not just the city. That's one example. Another example really comes out of, some of you may have, um, and where I'm headed with this, is just to make a simple point. That life in Birmingham is complicated. And this came home to me listening to a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell. He has a podcast called Revisionist History. And in one of the recent podcasts, he talks about the most iconic photo in the civil rights movement. And it's the photo that was taken at Kelly Ingram Park on May 5th, 1963, or May 3rd, 1963, during one of the 
the marches. Martin Luther King was here, and they were planning nonviolent marches in the downtown part of Birmingham, right out of 16th Street Baptist Church. And on May 3rd, 1963, one of those marches uh, began to take place. And in the course of this march, this, this boy, a 14-year-old boy, his name was Walter Gadsden, comes across a police officer who is holding a German shepherd. And if you know the photo, you know the, the image. It's an image of a police officer holding a leash to a German shepherd who's lunging at this African-American boy. And the next day, this photo goes viral. It's on the front page of the New York Times, on every major newspaper. And in this podcast, Malcolm Gladwell does some research. And he actually tells of this interview of Walter Gadsden, now, not, not very long ago, about this experience. And what he comes to find out through this interview is that what's pictured in this photograph and what is actually now pictured in a statue called the Foot Soldier in Kelly Ingram Park are two very different images. And this podcast tells the story of how they became so different. And what we end up realizing is there in this statue, and this is part, partly from his, from his podcast, he, he talks about this statue in Kelly Ingram Park. It's one of the most iconic moments captured in the statue in the whole civil rights movement. But what he discovers is that almost everyone directly connected with that moment thinks it didn't happen the way that the statue pictures it. For example... Walter Gadsden was about 6'4 when he's 14 years old. And the police officer who was holding the German shepherd, his name was Richard Middleton, was about 5'9. If you look at the statue, the police officer is towering over this small young boy. If you look at the picture also, you can tell the police officer, and he makes note of this in the podcast, is actually pulling back on the German shepherd. He's not unleashing a dog on a young boy. If you look at the, at the photograph, Walter Gadsden, when the dog lunges at him, he raises his knee up and describes his own experience growing up. He learned that if a dog lunges at you, you raise your knee up and it hits him in the chest. And he's actually holding on to uh, Richard Middleton's arm to brace from that lunge of the dog. But in the photograph, you see the young boy with his arms back like this, ready to take whatever comes. It's a fascinating story to listen. And my point isn't to argue for what's right or not here. What I'm trying to help us to see is our story in Birmingham is complicated. Let me try to help you see this just by unfolding this from this interview a little bit. When Malcolm Gladwell interviews the artist, he says, I saw that the boy was being about 6'4". The officer was maybe 5'10 or 5'9". And I said, this, this is a movement, that is a civil rights movement, is about power. So I made the little boy younger and smaller and the officer taller and stronger. The arm of the law is so strong, that's why 
His arm is almost like straight. And the dog is more like a wolf than a real dog because if I'm a little boy, that's what I would see. I would see like this Superman hovering over me, putting this big old giant monster of a dog on me. And he says, he describes the, the boy that... Um, why he's leaning back. His hands are open and, and, he, and he's saying, do whatever you're going to do. Put the dog on me. Beat me with the club. Whatever you want to do. And even the glasses of the, the policeman, the artist d- creates them to look like they're huge. Almost like glasses a blind person would wear because he doesn't see the boy. Now here's how Malcolm Gladwell describes this. He says, when you're face to face with the statue... It has historical authority. It's in the shadow of 16th Street Baptist Church inside Kelly Ingram Park at the actual site of the Birmingham marches. But it's a work of imagination. It's not a little representation. It's art. And then he goes on to say this. He says, the artist, he made the dog into a wolf and he blinded Middleton and shrank Walter Gadsden until he was tiny and helpless because he was telling a story about Birmingham. And then he he writes, he says, that's what history is. Each side writes their own story, and the winner's story is the one we call the truth. Then he says, he says, you don't think white people told their their share of whoppers over the years in the South? You don't think there's a statue in a southern town somewhere of a champion of the Confederacy that makes a hero of someone who is actually a villain? He says, white people got to do that in the South for centuries. Foot soldier is just what happens when the people on the bottom finally get the power to tell the story their way. It's provocative. Maybe even hearing that's uncomfortable. But the reason we have decided to think about all the people and places of Birmingham is that every part of our city, everything that falls on that label of Birmingham, falls under the scope of the story of the Bible that needs to be made new. Now, what does all that have to do with Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, especially these 11 verses. Let me try to show you what what I think this has to do with it. These 11 verses, they're addressed to God's people in exile. It's probably around 540 B.C. Jerusalem has been destroyed for more than 40 years. They are a long way from home. Their lives have been shattered. It's been ruined by their own sin and even the sin of others. And they live under the tyranny of Babylon. And unless God comes to rescue and restore them, there is no hope. In fact, chapter 39 ends in utter hopelessness. Now, I venture to guess that there are any number of people who have lived in our city who can relate to lives shattered And I don't just mean African-American people. I don't just mean poor people. I mean everyone. Lives shattered either because of broken homes, lack of opportunity, addiction, catastrophe, lives ruined and shattered and wondering, is there any hope? Is there any rescue? Is there any good news? Or is this world really just one moment of cruelty 
and heartache and loss and despair, one after another. But see, Isaiah 40 steps into that kind of darkness and describes God coming and revealing His glory for all to see in terms of, if you look at verse 4, in terms of every valley being lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And why? Because God wants to reveal His glory to everyone. If we could use our language to all the people and places of Birmingham. What does God want to reveal? What does He want to show us? What does He want everyone to see about Him and the way that He comes to His people in their despair and in their distress? Just for the next couple minutes, I just want to give you two points to answer that question. What God wants us to see, what He wants our neighbors to see, our city to see, the world to see, is that God comes with a life-changing word of comfort, and God comes with a word of good news. First of all, this life-changing word of comfort, look in verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. These words here of comfort, that word comfort that's repeated twice, could also be rendered to console. These are words of weeping with someone who's weeping. Coming alongside someone in the midst of their anguish and their pain and their sorrow with words of comfort and consolation. You're not alone anymore. What you've been going through is coming to an end. That's what these words are saying. And when verse 2 says, speak tenderly, literally it, it means speak to Jerusalem's heart. Here Jerusalem is another name for God's people. God is coming to speak to the hearts of men and women who have lost or forgotten who they really are, who are under bondage to another power, another place. And so here when God says, comfort, comfort my people and speak to their hearts, what he's saying is, speak to who they really are. Remind them that they are still my people. He's speaking to them to say, to give them what they really need. Look in verse 2. Speak to them tenderly, telling them that, that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. What Isaiah is telling us, there is freedom and there's forgiveness in this word of comfort. And in fact, this word that's, just, that's here, warfare is ended, describes hard service, affliction. It appears in Job all the time. And this iniquity is pardoned is, a, is God forgiving his people for all of their sin. And in fact, if we were to read on, he doesn't really say here, well, how can God forgive in light of the first 39 chapters? But what we read here is really an introduction to the rest of the book. It anticipates the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This word of comfort is, these are words of life to people whose lives 
are ruined. These are words that bring an end to exile. And the basic point I want you to hear from this is simply this, that God never abandons his people, no matter how guilty or undeserving. He is famous in the scriptures for entering into people's lives, into horrible circumstances that are complicated, that are broken, that are full of rebellion and self-centeredness and oppression and blame shifting. He's famous for entering into those kinds of situations to bring comfort. So he brings not only a word of comfort, though. He doesn't come just to comfort and leave us there. He comes to comfort and he brings good news. If you look in verses 9 through 11, especially verse 9 here, notice twice we see in verse 9 good news. He says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. This is the first time in the Old Testament that a writer intentionally uses good news. And let's look at what is the good news. Look at the very end of verse 9. Behold your God. What is the gospel? The good news of the Bible is beholding God, coming to his people to speak words of comfort and tenderness, to set them free, to bring forgiveness. The gospel is not about you or me. The gospel is not your growth as a Christian, how well you are or are not doing. Because if we're honest... A lot of times, that's not very good news. No, the good news, according to the Bible, is beholding God, knowing Him, seeing, and with the eyes of faith, Him coming. Now, how does He come? Look in verse 10. The Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. And his recompense before him. God comes in power. And here when it describes that he comes with a reward. The reward here is his people. His payment for his effort of rescue. Is he comes with his people. But he also comes in mercy in verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather their lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. And gently lead those that are with young. Perhaps you need to be reminded, what is God's mercy like? God's mercy is Him gathering you in His arms, carrying you. God's mercy is His leading you, His holding you close to Himself, knowing that you are too young, that is too vulnerable, too weak to make it on your own. Now, remember, as I've said, that this this whole passage is first addressed to God's people in exile about his coming rescue. And we certainly see parts of that rescue in the rest of the story of the Bible, but it's really not until the New Testament that we discover the truly good news of which Isaiah speaks about here. All four gospel writers take Isaiah 40, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
as the description of John the Baptist's ministry, preparing the way for Jesus to come. That Isaiah, though the exiles didn't know it, what he's speaking about here is the coming of the Lord, the revealing of God's glory in the person of Jesus. Now, how does Jesus come? How do we see the glory of God revealed for all flesh to see in Jesus? Well, as we've already noticed, God comes in power. Well, Jesus comes in power. What do we see him doing in the Gospels? Healing people, casting out demons, cleansing people, miracles. And most people, when they read that, that's, they're like, that's not how things really work. That's not how things really function. But you know what? In the Bible, miracles are actually how things are supposed to work. They're really not unusual. What's unusual is the brokenness and the breakdown and the disintegration that Jesus has come to make right. He comes in power, but he also comes in mercy. John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. He comes, he gathers his sheep. He carries his sheep. He leads his sheep. And how does he do that? He does it even by giving his life, by suffering and dying on the cross. He is the shepherd who comes in such mercy, with such grace, that he sacrifices his own life for the sheep. Jesus is our comfort who speaks to the heart. He is the suffering servant who bears our sin that brings forgiveness and freedom. Now, I hope that when we talk about all the people and places of Birmingham, you think of Isaiah 40. You think of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. That in his coming, valleys are lifted up, mountains are brought low. That there is a highway for our God. That God has revealed good news. And I'll be the first to admit, it's not lost on me or any of your elders that our vision is huge. It's unattainable. We're never going to get there. And that's the point. Because the vision of the Bible is so beautiful and so rich and so large We're never going to get there until Jesus comes back. But that does not mean we don't have a calling and a task to pursue that by faith, trusting that Jesus has come, that God has revealed himself. And in fact, look in verse 6 to 8 as we close here. In these last couple verses, Presumably, this is the prophet Isaiah saying, what am I supposed to say? Because these people, they're like grass. They're going to die and wither and be no more. In other words, our confidence is not about us, our abilities, our qualifications. No, it's about God's word, which will stand forever. Why can we pursue a vision like this? It's not because we know we will make it work. But it's because God has promised. He has promised to enter in to a very complicated place 
Lots of different stories. Some are probably at odds with each other. In order to, to, to tell a new story that can bring new life, new friendships, new relationships between us, but also with God. And he has promised. The gospel is an exile-ending word of good news. And that's what we're being called into. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for, for passages like this. Thank you that your word never shrinks back from how the world really is, uh, for what our hearts are really like, and also the ways in which you enter in and you proclaim good news, words of comfort, words of rescue, words of forgiveness and freedom, words of power and mercy. And thank you that you say all those things, not just with words, but with your son, your beloved son, whom you sent to live in our midst as a man, in the midst of the brokenness and sin of this world, to suffer the consequences and bear the punishment so that through faith in him we might know what life is, what forgiveness is, what freedom is. And Father, we pray that for each of us. We pray that for our neighbors and we pray that for our city. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.